Hello again, welcome to another podcast episode on talk architecture and I'm your host, Naziati Muhammad Yaakob. Continuing on part two of the idea of adaptability. Taking off from the last we talked about it, there is a relationship between visualization and the idea of adaptability. Now, we took two disciplines. One is mental health balance or mental health per se, psychological or cognition. And then on the other side, we have architecture or the practice of architecture or the education of the architect. So these two things, we look into these two contexts and background and anything to do with it in the understanding that there is a relationship between adaptability and visualization. Obviously, in architecture education and architectural practice, the visualization techniques or the attempt to visualize an idea or a sketch or a scheme is paramount in order for the profession to survive with the fact that whether you need architecture at all. But of course, other disciplines also can do that. And there's a question of whether it's a good design or not good design or just design or it could be a better design. And innovation that has to do with a higher knowledge and comprehension of the difficulties in integrating all the elements that make architecture so fascinating and taking it to another level, we have also deeply engaged with universal design and accessibility, which is kind of a specialized thing and yet something fundamental. But a little bit further down the road would be sensorial experiences and sensory design and maybe linked to phenomenological endeavors of the phenomenology. So... We shall look at that later, go back to actually thinking about the idea of visualization and adaptability in the context of a human being and cognition and in the whole pursuant of mental health balance for architects or anyone at all, any human being at all. So the idea that I proposed the idea that earlier... Um, in order to be much more um, consistent or focus on your goals and dreams, you actually sketch it out. And the best way is a three-dimensional sketch of a scene that you want to happen, like in terms of relationship or a romantic relationship, to be precise, where you could imagine you're exchanging vows in a religious setting or in a wedding uh, situation uh, with your uh, romantic partner. And, and, you know, details like chandeliers or tables and, and the coverings on the tables and the flowers and the smell of the flowers, I mean, every sensorial thing that you can think of could be obtained, could be idealized and... Obviously, you know, in that context, when people arrange for their wedding, banquet, 
and event to happen, um, those little details meant a lot. Even the song that is being played during the wedding and so on. So you actually could sketch it out uh, in your mind exactly what you want it, want to happen. The point is here is that how you sketch out in your mind could be a very fixed ideal and not flexible, you know what I mean? And if you had a discussion with your beloved uh, to about your wedding, uh, the other person, your partner, could say, no, I don't want that sort of wedding. I want um, a wedding that's very laid back and at the, at the beach with the sunset and uh, we have a barbecue and very simple one and so on. So, you see, the flexibility and adaptability of another human being to that situation that could change is very much something that, uh, is kind of like uh, what humans do, of course, and could be a an important uh, factor in survival. For example, that your your future spouse or future partner would would uh, would consider you to be a good mate, for that matter. You know, when you are flexible and adaptable to change. So why can't that be in architecture? Why can't architecture, uh, if it is a collaboration between the architect, the designer, and the uh, client or uh, the collaborator that funds or the thinking about the user, uh, how the users use the building or how the future use, future proofing, uh, the building would entail uh, being much more adaptable and thinking about adaptability as part of the concept or the idea, central idea to the whole endeavor of designing uh, architecture. So you see the similarities between mental health uh, balance and the idea of that, uh, um, how one would pursue visualization and adaptability with that of architecture practice or architecture education. So needless to say, in architecture education, um, why can't we be much more <coughs> flexible? In our, t- in our teaching course, in uh, the students understanding what architecture is about and the idea of adaptability could be something that um, is being uh, explored more. Well, we have... In the previous uh, courses that I've engaged with, kind of be fixated about certain grandmasters like Le Corbusier, Frank Lloyd Wright, and Miss Van der Rohe, Walter Gropius, and many others who we sort of like teach to our students, these are the grandmasters or these are the masters of architecture which have these uh, beliefs and you strive for the principles that they have um, explored and in their architecture and um, whether you're a Misian person or a Lecoq person or, you know, you idolize one of them or, and so on, you know, it's some kind something that is kind of like quite commonly happen in architecture schools, you know, like um, learning about architecture theory and uh, history of architecture uh, through the eyes and precedence of 
these models, these role models, uh, human beings, and also the architecture that they design. So it's kind of a common way to study architecture. Is that a good thing or not? I mean, I've been teaching that for many, many years, and then suddenly I realize maybe we lack of exposure to different architects that could be much more interesting. Towards the end of my career as uh, an academic that teach a design theory, uh, we started investigating other uh, architecture uh, principles and ideas from architects, including those with phenomenological uh, bent or uh, theory. Um and also uh, introducing to non-architects as well, um, vernacular buildings, uh, the, uh, how vernacular buildings emerge and developed over the years, uh, buildings uh, that are designed and built by the non-architects, which is 80% of the population, by the way, um, or 80% of the, um, not 80% of the population, sorry, 80% of the built form that has been built throughout um, the ages, because uh, no, those that we uh, focus on um, by the grandmasters and uh, star architects make up of the 20%, but the 80% is by non-architects. Non-architects include... Um, other professionals or contractors or um, a contractual um, a situation where you do not need architects to be involved with the building of something. So are they uh, adaptable as well, do these non-architect building? But we're focusing on vernacular architecture per se, and I was thinking along the lines of traditional architecture. In my country, uh, such buildings are being made in a certain way that traditionally uh, people sit on the floors and it's raised by timber, timber uh, stilts. The whole thing is in timber. And the wall is sort of permeable in a way uh, with very low-hanging eaves that won't allow for rain to come in, but allow for cool breeze to come in and and semi-permeable or quite permeable in a sense that even insects can come in. But the point is, these structures and enclosures, um, without the use of equipment and air conditioning and even fans, could be very comfortable. So the origination of such idea of obviously came from a survival of how one would need to um or a survival instinct that one would needs to to live uh, comfortably uh in the home uh, without getting wet without getting hot and bothered and able to do all the activities needed at home and um <coughs> excuse me so we have uh, this uh, we call it the traditional houses in my country in Malaysia as a good prototype for um, adaptability. Um, however, because of the lack of material, the lack of timber material per se, um, and the fact that it's not 
conducive to the modern living of having certain things or is in the perception of of how modern living should be it became sort of obsolete and not replicated after a certain time and also that timber uh, costs rise and is very expensive now along with the lack of skills and knowledge for people to build in timber or not the lack of skills maybe it's very expensive for someone to build in timber um and this whole tradition is cut off in one point but the but most importantly people are not interested anymore to live in such houses but can these new house forms that we have now have a similar principle in terms of being able to be self-sustaining and have the same thermal comfort as these timber houses. And some architects do apply that. Is that the end of it? Would the architects apply some of these principles? Would it then be still be adaptable? So that is one of the things that for houses, for example, so you have limited access to visit houses, but what you can garner from in terms of the publication and what people talk about when they design houses, you can find out about how the architect is in collaboration with the owner or not. When it comes to public buildings and highly specialized buildings, such as transportation hubs or maybe... um a relig- uh, not religious building, uh, hospitals, yeah. Well, buildings, yeah, those are specialized buildings. One could imagine that uh, the adaptability factor could be in how that building would grow or develop over time in which there could be more patients being used or that you could change it about in a way that you could um, renovate it so that it is expanded to accommodate to new uses and new technologies, for example. I would wonder about how hospital design evolved over time. And being a user or someone who goes to hospital, quite often I have seen how a certain hospital that I go to change over time. And some of it is still the same at parts, and some of it has changed a lot. And it's basically trying to cope with the volume of people coming in. And the car parking is atrocious. Yeah, when it comes to car parking management, uh, it is, um, in a way, I should say, at one point, very inaccessible. But uh, they rectified it a bit. But still, there are some things that could be improved. Now we've talked about hospitals and transportation hubs. There are uh, certain building types, for example, schools and colleges, and um, some building types that are linear in form. It may also integrate accommodation and living quarters, and they could be flexible if the system... Um, is easily can adapt to it, you know, like you change if it's a living accommodation, obviously from non-living accommodation to living accommodation, 
the piping system could be exposed or if it's not exposed, how are you going to have it run along the wall and the beams and and so on? How are you going to integrate that? So such um, ideas did the architect who designed the basic building think about the possibility of it being changed to a uh, accommodation for people uh, like hostel or budget hotel and so on? In the case of the Pullman Hotel, they did that, um, renovated an office building. They couldn't sell the office building space. And then the hotel owner bought it and reconverted it into or converted it into a hotel. And the rooms are odd sometimes. But other than that, what are the implications uh, to to this? Would it... Uh, impede on accessibility or safety or usability of certain things. Um, for example, um, toilets and um, bathrooms or even the uh, means of escape and the um, problems of egress, for example. Um, this is something that one need to find out if you want want to do a study on this obviously whether the building has been able that form that originally it was was it able to adapt to function well as a the the new built the new function that is to accommodate so with that in mind i would like to finish this session of trying to clarify what we're trying to talk about here when we talk about visualization and adaptability. When something is known, when it is something that is completed and you can use it, then you can visualize how you're going to change it. And this is a part of decision-making processes that um, anyone has to do with uh, developing something would need to have. So in the first instance, how much of your agenda would you need to put into this, the basic form so that uh, it is more adaptable? How much of your agenda? Is it like 0% or to 20%? You should not have your agenda or your style, stylization of it, you know, make it much more utilitarian and able to adapt, make it much more modular. Maybe don't be so fanciful with the curves, for example. Hence, you know, there's certain types of form that is more adaptable than other forms. So we all can get the idea now. And yeah, thank you very much for listening.